0: November 1987, the Nevada California border. Seven year old Alexander Harris was returning from a weekend family reunion with his mother and grandparents when they made an unplanned stop at Whiskey Pete's casino for a day of gambling and arcade games. When Alexander's mother went to fetch him to leave, he was nowhere to be found. Now, unfortunately, Alexander is the forgotten person in this case. His murder overshadowed by the criminal case and damages lawsuits that follow. The limited information that is out there on the kind of child Alexander was, and on his disappearance and murder investigation, is heartbreaking. But that makes it all the more important that I share what is out there with you today. Alexander's case is solvable, and his family deserve justice for their sweet, bespectacled little boy. And this is Alexander's story. Seven-year-old Alexander Harris lived with his mother, Roxanne, and grandparents in Mountain View, California. In November 1987, the family were on a trip to Las Vegas for the annual Harris Family Thanksgiving Day reunion, something little Alexander always enjoyed, catching up with his cousins and enjoying the attention from the older family members that he had not seen in a year. November 27, 1987 – After the holiday weekend, the family decided to make a short stop, stopping at the Whiskey Pete's Casino in State Line at the Nevada-California border. Now, stopping at Whiskey Pete's was not unusual. It was a popular rest stop for travellers coming into California, and the family decided to make a day of it. Roxanne and her father wanted to try their luck at some gambling. The casino also had a large video arcade area, which being seven years old, Alexander could not wait to explore. At 11am, Roxanne would leave Alexander in the video arcade area, while she went into the adjacent gambling room. How close these two rooms were to each other is unclear. However, I don't want to be too hard on Roxanne. It was the 80s after all, and parenting was much more free-range. You trusted your child to be responsible and make responsible choices. You allowed them just that little more freedom to explore and learn and grow. Roxanne would have been just like any other mother in this situation in the 1980s. The Beaumont children mystery does come to mind here. And most times you would go and collect your child when it was time to go, or they would seek you out for more money or food or a drink. But then there are those other times. Even though you let your child go off on their own a hundred times, that 101st time, the unthinkable happens. And that's unfortunately what happens in this case. It is unclear how much time passes between Roxanne leaving Alexander in the bright flashing lights of the arcade games, and when she goes back to fetch him to finish their trip back home. But only 20 minutes later, witnesses would later report seeing a young boy with eyeglasses, willingly walked down the hallway and out of the casino with a man aged in his 30s who was also wearing eyeglasses. Witnesses weren't alarmed by this. The two looked very alike. They assumed that the pair were father and son, and the boy wasn't scared or trying to get away from the man. The man was simply holding the young boy's hand as he was led out of the casino. It is believed this boy was Alexander Harris, and the man, he would be his killer. After some time gambling without much success, Roxanne and her parents decided it was time to finish their travels. It was getting late, and they still had several hours driving ahead of them. But when Roxanne entered the video arcade area, Alexander was nowhere to be seen, after a search at the casino showed no sign of the little boy, Roxanne reported Alexander missing to police. Police would immediately arrive on the scene and question Roxanne and Alexander's grandparents. The family would be quickly ruled out as suspects and have never been thought of being involved in what happened to Alexander Patrons were questioned, and they relayed the sightings of the boy and the man they thought to be father and son walking out of the casino. This would have created such panic for Roxanne, as Alexander's father was not in his life and was not in the area at the time of the abduction. So who was this man, and what did he do with her son? Surveillance footage was available, which seems the exception and not the rule for this time period but may or may not have proven crucial in assisting in creating the suspect description. Now, it must be said that while it seems universally accepted that this was Alexander in the surveillance footage, it has never been confirmed. And interestingly, I cannot find any mention this surveillance footage still exists today. That would be a great shame if it doesn't. Forensic experts would now be able to enhance and clean up the footage, to give investigators a better picture of the pair in the footage, maybe provide a more accurate description of their suspect, and determine the importance of the footage because, because it may not even be Alexander anyway. Unfortunately, witness descriptions are not the most reliable, and there were two different descriptions of the potential suspects supplied to police. And the police did all they could to find Alexander – They had two composites made of each of the witness descriptions, and these composites were released to the media in hopes of finding the man seen on the tape. I will place these composites in the Facebook group. The first sketch showed a man of 5'7 to 5'9 and 160 to 175 pounds, with straight, collar-length blonde hair and wearing silver wire-rimmed glasses. He was wearing dark trousers and a brown jacket. The Defrosting Cold Cases blog did some digging, and he believes this brown jacket to be a members-only brand jacket, a brand that was very popular in the United States in the 1980s. The second sketch was of a slightly taller man of six foot and around 170 pounds, with sandy blonde hair and round wire-rimmed eyeglasses. These descriptions matched those of three men who were present at the casino on the day that Alexander went missing. One was an employee and two were guests. All three had solid alibis. However, for one of these men, this alibi would not be enough to clear him of suspicion. And the tunnel vision of this investigation, I would say, it really would have meant other potential suspects would have been overlooked and evidence may have been missed. In the minds and opinions of police, only one person could have been responsible for abducting Alexander Howard Lee Hapult. Howard was a computer programmer hailing from San Diego, California. He was staying at the casino hotel for the weekend to attend a sand sailing tournament, and that's where he was on the day that Alexander went missing. Numerous witnesses would place him there at the same time Alexander went missing from the casino's video arcade. But that didn't matter to police. They planned their next approach to charge Howard with Alexander's abduction. Over the next few weeks, police and volunteers would thoroughly search the property surrounding the casino, as well as every room in the casino itself, but to no avail. Alexander was nowhere to be found. Police were facing mounting pressure from the public and constant criticism for the way they seemed to be handling or mishandling the case. And unfortunately, December 30th, 1987, a little more than a month later, a gardener tending to the grounds of the trailer park off the casino property would discover Alexander's body under one of the trailers. He was still wearing the same clothes he had been wearing when he went missing. His eyeglasses were also found nearby. There was no obvious signs of trauma to Alexander's little body. However, an autopsy would determine his cause of death was due to strangulation. The trailer which Alexander was found underneath was one of ten trailer sites near Whiskey Pete's that was used by casino executives – Due to the remote location of the casino, employment at the casino included board at this trailer park, well, for the executives anyway. It is not clear whether anyone was staying in this particular trailer at the time of Alexander's disappearance and recovery. There is such little information out there on this little boy. It's what's really heartbreaking about cases like this. It's like they never existed when in fact they were victims to these horrific crimes that not only took their life, but destroyed countless lives around them while they grieved their loved ones and dealt with life after the crime. Honestly, if you go now and Google Alexander Harris, you won't even get anything about this story. You have to add murder as well into your search. And then most of what's out there is on Howard's trial and his lawsuit afterwards but I am getting ahead of myself here. Police did make every effort to keep the crime scene intact. After disconnecting all the utilities, they used a crane to lift the trowel off of its foundations. The eyeglasses did have a latent fingerprint on one of the lenses, and strands of blonde hair that did not belong to Alexander was found on his body. Again, like with our main episode this week, Tracy Neef. Forensic testing wasn't very advanced at this time, and again, it's not clear if these pieces of evidence are still available today. If anyone cared enough for this sweet little guy to preserve the evidence, and cares about him enough today to pull the fingerprint and the hair and run it through testing that is available today, because we know that perpetrators don't simply stop, they escalate if anything. And maybe they would get a hit and finally solve this case – It is very solvable if the evidence still exists, but I would not be surprised if it has long since been destroyed or lost. February 19th, 1988. The FBI would front at Howard Huppolt's place of work in Las Vegas, Nevada and take him in for questioning, to find out if there was anything he wasn't telling them about the day Alexander went missing. They would question him for up to four hours without a break, trying to get him to confess to a murder that Howard was insistent that he had nothing to do with. At that time, Howard was formally arrested under suspicion of kidnapping and first-degree murder. Police then had him lie flat in the back of an unmarked patrol car with a jacket over his face. To shield him from the news photographers, they took him to the holding cell at the Clark County Detention Centre. Defrosting Cold Cases blog did amazing work with his research into this case, and I will provide links to his website in the show notes. But Defrosting Cold Cases requested the police files. Howard Huppelt had no previous criminal records prior to this, and the FBI would make him take not one but two polygraph tests, both of which he passed with flying colours. The case would still go forward to trial in early 1989. January 13th, 1989. The trial would last for five weeks. The defence produced as many as eight witnesses who all testified that they saw Howard at the sailing tournament that morning Alexander disappeared, and throughout that afternoon. The prosecution had nothing. Honestly, I don't understand how this case even got to trial. On what? Unless there is more than what I could find and defrosting cold cases could find in our research— The prosecution's case was threadbare. It was based on nothing, besides Howard vaguely matching one of two conflicting descriptions of a man who was seen with a boy who may or may not even be Alexander. The jury took just one day to acquit Howard Huppolt of all charges, because the testimony of the eyewitnesses put forward by the prosecution were unreliable. Quote, Witnesses of the abduction were inconsistent statements and there was not enough evidence for a conviction, Howard's defense attorney had pointed out all the conflicting statements in their closing arguments. Our story does not end there, though. Not for Howard Huppelt. In 1990, Howard filed a civil suit in federal court, alleging the Las Vegas Police Department two homicide detectives with the FBI and the Clark County prison system all conspired to violate his civil rights in arresting him and holding him for a year for a crime that they had no evidence he committed. Howard was seeking $3 million in compensatory damages and $1 million in punitive damages. The Las Vegas federal jury originally awarded Howard $1 in compensatory damages and $1 million in punitive damages. But then U.S. District Judge Philip Pro overturned the $1 million reward because he believed it was excessive and he ordered a new trial. But no one wanted to go back to court again, and the Metro Police and Howard's attorneys, they agreed to settle out of court. They agreed to allow a federal judge to decide on the amount of damages suitable. The breakdown of this amount was calculated through a formula based on legal fees – Judge Pro ordered the city of Las Vegas to pay about $500,000 in attorney's fees, even though Howard would later state in media interviews that he spent more than $750,000 in defending his innocence. Now for Alexander, who is truly the forgotten person here in the story. Unfortunately for Alexander and his family, there have never been any further arrests made in the case. It has since gone cold, not that it was anything but cold, and Alexander's murder remains unsolved to this day. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook. Like the page so you don't miss an episode and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, stolen lives podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu.